good morning. It is a great blessing that we get to do this every week. Get to gather as the body of Christ to worship and and together we get to come under his word. Um, I want to invite you to join me in his word in Matthew chapter 11. We'll be looking to verses 25 through 30. While you're turning there, I'll let you know where we are going over the next few weeks. Next week, we will begin our Advent series. Matthew chapter 1 records a genealogy for Jesus. And in that genealogy, we find the name of five women. That is notable because it is an outlier in genealogies that would have been recorded at the time. Women weren't included in those types of things. But the Lord is telling us something. He's telling us something with particular stories of the women that are included and how they point us to Jesus. And so in anticipation of next week, I encourage you to take a little time to read Matthew 1. You'll see the story of Tamar. So you might want to also read Genesis 38. That's where we're going next week. This week we are in our second week of study on rest. Last week we talked about a ceasing rest. This week it's a working rest. Working out of a heart that is at rest. If you're prepared to turn to, to God's word, let me pray for us asking his blessing reading and preaching this word. Would you bow with me? Father, we come now to your word and we come bringing hearts that need to hear your word, but also hearts that are in so many ways resistant to your word. And so I pray for preacher and hearer that you would give us by the power of your spirit ears to hear that in hearing, we would see and know and love Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes the most helpful way to think about what a word or concept means is to think about its opposite. So as we're talking about rest, I want you to think about what is the opposite of rest? It's tempting when we think about the opposite of rest to, to think about hard work. But that might 
be missing something. It's not quite that simple. We need to have a more nuanced understanding of rest. Perhaps you might remember President Reagan and George W. Bush. Remember what they did to get away from the rigors of office? They went to the ranch where they worked hard because they needed to sweat. (laughs) Sometimes work can be restful. How about you? Do you find rest in activities that don't include a recliner or a bed? (laughs) My guess is you do. Because the search for rest doesn't always include physical inactivity. So maybe when we think about the opposite of rest, we could simply say it is unrest. What causes unrest? Is it merely those situations that are external to you? Or could the issues of unrest be much more internal issues of the heart? Verses 28 through 30 are sweet words of invitation from Jesus. During a a particularly lengthy season of unrest in my life, I went for months on end finding myself wide awake at 2.30 in the morning. There, with eyes wide open, Uh, I would cling to these words from Jesus. I desired a deep rest that I sensed only He could give. And I began to, to turn to these words every morning. They were and continue to be a balm to my soul. Are they to yours? I pray that they will be. But why? Verses 28 through 30 have a context. That context is, on one hand, the verses that we read beginning in verse 25, but they go beyond that, verses 20 through 24, in the passage just above where we read. In that passage, in verses 20 through 24, Jesus offers a series of woes, or pronouncements of judgment upon a group of Cities And those particular cities that he pronounces this woe upon were, were unrepentant cities. They were cities in which he had taught, where he had spoken his word, and where he had performed mighty works, miracles in their presence. And yet these cities remained unrepentant. He contrasts. These cities that heard and saw his works with other cities like Sodom. If you were to look up in a dictionary, a picture of Sin City, it would not be Las Vegas. It would be Sodom. And yet Jesus says that this city that we know by its sin would have repented upon hearing his message and seeing his works because they were not tainted by their own personal religious self-sufficiency. Cities like Chorazin, Bethsaida, 
Capernaum, on the other hand, did, did hear. They did see, and yet they rejected because they thought they had no need. They were trusting in their own religious devotion. And because of that personal good work, they were hardened against hearing with childlike dependence. In other words, they were unrepentant because they were self-sufficient. It's a warning to us. Can you relate to this sense of hope in your own personal goodness? Verse 25, Jesus uh, says that the Father had hidden from the wise and the understanding these things. These things that the Father had had hidden were uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of a Savior who would come not merely to model for us good behavior, but who would stand in our place as the perfect sacrificial lamb. And the Father, in His wisdom, chose to hide the truth about this Savior from those who are wise and understanding in their own eyes. It's not that wisdom and and knowledge are, are bad, but they are no Savior. Wisdom and knowledge that puff up, they blind us to the reality of our own need. And blinded from need, we are insulated from love. Again, it's a warning. It continues in verses 25 through 27 where Jesus makes a clear proclamation of the sovereignty of God over salvation and continues on with a beautiful statement about the unity and the knowing relationship that exists between Son and Father. Verse 27, Jesus speaks of Him as the Son who loves the Father. He chooses those to whom he will reveal the Father. It's a sovereignty. But then in verse 28, there is a very broad invitation, come to me all. Verse 27, the Son chooses. In verse 28, he invites all. But who are the all who will come? Who are the all who respond to this invitation from Jesus? It is not the religious. It is the weary and the broken. Don't miss this. Jesus is sovereign even over the brokenness. How often do we spend our lives, our prayer lives, our devotional life in the Word trying to run from weariness and brokenness? How often do we spend our lives masking it? And yet, Jesus brings it. So do we see this brokenness as a gift? Or do we replace it with our own wisdom and understanding? The labor, in verse 28 does not refer to your job. The labor of verse 28 does not refer to your household chores. It refers to the labor of self-justification. And so this invitation from Jesus is an invitation to come 
and to lay down your striving. And with that invitation comes the promise of rest. It's interesting this rest that we have been talking about so much over the past two weeks is mentioned in verses 28 and 29, but in verse 28, the rest is used as a verb. In verse 29, it's a noun. The verb in 28 is uh, the rest that Jesus gives. In other words, Jesus causes rest. Verse 29 is the state of rest that we receive. The rest that we find or, or rather that we obtain. So Jesus rests us and then we find rest in Jesus. But again, what is rest? We consider the rest here and the rest that we obtain in Jesus. We need to see that it's a rest that brings certain additions to our lives and it also subtracts some things from our lives. Positively, this rest is is the presence of of peace of mind and of heart. It is shalom. Shalom is is the concept of peace that is is not merely the absence of conflict, but it is a peace that comes with the very presence of God. We experience this peace with the mind and heart that are at rest. But alternatively, this peace is also the absence of, of anxiety fear, of uncertainty, of despair. It's a rest that is different than the rest that we talked about last week, yet the two are connected. Last week when we talked about rest, looking to God's rest in Genesis chapter 2, we saw that it was a, it was a stopping rest, a ceasing rest. God stopped because he was satisfied in his completed work. We don't stop because we're satisfied in our completed work. We stop because we're satisfied in God. And so that rest that was a physical rest last week informs the spiritual. This rest is a spiritual rest, a soul rest that then informs the physical and the emotional and the relational. It's all inter connected but why don't we have it what causes unrest in you we've already talked about the unrest that comes from our our striving striving to make something of ourselves sort of this living with a pick yourself up by the bootstraps mentality that that shows up in 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 our work and our in our labor, but it tends to capture everything about our being. That striving certainly causes um, unrest, but, but there are other causes. We talked about this in, in our worship planning this week, and it was helpful for me to always hear from, from others, and we see that so much about our lives is, is not restful, but One of the things that causes us um, a lack of peace is that our minds are at unrest. We live with anxious, unsettled minds. Maybe it is our work that we just can't seem 
to let go of. Maybe it is ministry, something good like that. Maybe it is relationships or, or even the conflict that we're engaged in that we just can't let go of. We just can't seem to stop thinking about. So we problem solve. We obsess. Or is it just me? <laughs> I don't think so. Why do we do this? Why, why do we find ourselves with, with anxious minds? Certainly for some, there are issues of brain chemistry that, that play themselves out in a tendency toward hyper-focus. That is true, but, but beyond that physiological issue, there are also spiritual issues at play. I can't speak for each and every one of you, but I know that my anxious mind is born out of a spiritual forgetfulness. I can forget that God is sovereign. And when I forget that God is sovereign, I want to put Jesus then in the passenger seat and take that wheel back from him. So for a moment, I can rule the universe, or at least my small little slice of it. can be anxious in our minds when we think that we are in control. And so it is beautiful that in this passage, Jesus speaks so strongly about his sovereignty, that he is the king of kings. He is the one in charge of the universe. Anxious minds cause us to be unsettled. For others, it's an anxious schedule. Do you have any margin in your schedule? Do you have any space on that calendar for intentional spontaneity? I'm not talking about just a particular day that didn't happen to get filled up. I'm talking about intentionally carving out space on that schedule. If we were to put it up on the screen, what might that calendar look like for you? One appointment after another, one activity filling up the dead space? This leads to more than physical exhaustion. It leads us to unrest. And so why do we find ourselves in that repeated pattern? Well, again, I can't speak for everyone, but I understand what's going on in my own heart. The issue behind the issue for me with my anxious schedule is I want to be liked. I want to be respected. And so I default to doing do you know that I now take two study weeks a year in addition to my personal vacation? A week in the spring and a week in the fall. I asked our elders about that several years ago because I sensed this need for a time to be away, to plan, to pray without distraction. I needed to settle my heart, but the thing I that I learned about myself in those early years when I was doing that was I wouldn't tell anyone, because I didn't want you to know that I actually needed that. I hoped that if I could just get away without telling you that I was gone, that you would think that I was here working hard and long hours laboring away, and you would think well of me. Why? 
even when I knew I needed to carve out time in my anxious schedule, I was afraid of what that would say. I tell you now, largely to guard my own heart against masking. Maybe I also tell you now because you might need it yourself. And not only is it okay, we're wired for it. Our anxious mind, or excuse me, if my anxious mind, (laughs) results from forgetting God's sovereignty. My anxious schedule results from forgetting the gospel. I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone to forget that I am already loved and accepted in Jesus Christ. Again, is it just me? I don't think so. So what do we do? What do we do about our forgetfulness? What do we do about our anxious minds and our anxious schedules? We let go of our striving. But it's different than what we talked about last week. We're not talking this week about a stopping rest. So Jesus points us to a very surprising means of finding this rest. We, we like symbols. We like logos. We like uh, images that tell a story. It's, it's why the, the threads behind me are so clear in the story that they tell us about the, tapest- the ministry of tapestry. There are hotel chains that have chosen as their particular symbol uh, of rest, the bed. (laughs) They draw attention to the comfort of the beds in their rooms. They make those beds a symbol. I can imagine in my mind's eye the commercials that I have seen over the years from these hotel chains. They they picture a, a weary road warrior who is falling into a comfortable bed, but the camera in slow motion captures this road warrior falling to the bed with eyes closed, but a smile on their face. It's pretty effective, don't you think? The bed seems like a good symbol of rest, but it's not where Jesus went in this text. Rather than painting a picture of of a bed to show us how we are to find rest, he gives us a very different symbol. A yoke. Now, many of us probably have only seen yokes hanging on the wall as a decoration in Cracker Barrel. The yoke is is a wooden frame used to connect two animals, two beasts of burden together, then an implement would be attached to them like a plow. It's a symbol of work. Think two oxen, think two mules connected together, plowing the field. That yoke also kept slaves in bondage. It's a symbol of labor, it is a symbol of of submission. And yet Jesus in this text puts the yoke forward as a symbol of rest. 
rather than means of finding rest. How could such an implement of labor become the means of rest when the other person in that yoke is Jesus? Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. At times, that yoke is is used to train a young, unruly animal. That young, unruly oxen or ox or mule would be be connected to, yoked to a more mature animal so that the younger would learn the ways of the older. Connected to the older, together they would plow the field. Jesus is calling us, the younger, unruly brother and sister, to come and be connected to him that we might learn from him. To learn is to be a disciple. And Jesus is telling us that we find rest in our connection to him as we are bonded to him as his disciples. Eugene Peterson, in his Contemporary rendering of the Bible, the message, speaks of this passage and describes this rest as the unforced rhythms of grace. Those words wash over you. Those words themselves will give you rest. But why does he use them? Context here is Jesus is speaking against the Pharisees and the scribes who refused to repent and instead added labor to the people. It was a mindset that they possessed and propagated that their obedience would make them worthy of God. So they labored and they caused others to labor. And they placed heavy loads on those who were heavy laden. Have you ever tried to carry a stack of firewood? Have you ever had tried to carry that stack of firewood when someone else was stacking the firewood in your arms? And they placed one piece of wood after another, after another, after another. And at some point, you get to the tipping point where you are either going to fall over forward or you're going to drop the wood because there are loads that are too heavy to bear. Pharisees and the scribes were doing this with the law. They were adding to the law their own man-made additions, trying to use it as a way to find justification. But honestly, we don't need them to do this for us. We do it on our own. I can't think of a single time when I've talked to someone and they said that they were trying to earn their salvation. I can't think of a single time when someone told me specifically, if I just do this, this, and this, then I will be saved. We don't think explicitly in those terms, but we tend to fall into them. We tend to to fall into this works mindset. No, we don't use the words of self-justification, but we think in terms of self-worth. Do you find yourself measuring that worth in comparison with others? 
that comparison mindset is a telltale sign of a works righteousness focus. Some of us are not doing it with good works or labor. We're doing it with wisdom and understanding. Relying on our own minds. And we do that because when we can learn a lot about the Bible, then we can, we can resist our own neediness. We can resist our own brokenness. There are some here and many in our community who have deep respect for Jesus. They find in him a model of good works, and Jesus is a model. But he's not primarily a model. He is primarily a savior. But when we have merely a respect for Jesus, we keep him at a polite distance. We need to say this. Jesus at polite distance is not the gospel. And if you are looking to him merely as a role model to follow, to do good works, you are not in Christ. You might not be born again. That is not the gospel. That is you. This text and this sermon is a call to repent and believe in a Savior who calls us to lay down our striving and to find salvation in Him because He has taken our place on the cross. And yet there are others who, who know this gospel and yet have forgotten. I've already confessed my forgetfulness. We can, we can wiggle our way out of that yoke or we can try and carry it all by ourselves talked about the anxious mind and the anxious schedule if you are like me and all of that this is a call to remember to remember the gospel and for all of us this is a picture of the beauty of unforced rhythms of grace because in Jesus we no longer have to prove our worthiness we no longer have to strive after self-sufficiency because in Christ, by His grace and through faith in Him, we are justified, not by our own self-justification, but by the justification that comes through faith in Christ alone. It is a justification whereby His once and for all sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, past present and future and we are then granted a righteousness that is not our own it is a righteousness that comes from Christ forgiven and made holy this is what we have in Christ this is the unforced rhythm whereby yoked to Jesus we have the obedience of a beloved son the beloved son doesn't consciously fear. The beloved son isn't consciously trying to gain favor because the beloved son simply knows he is loved by his father. He just is. 
And so rather than trying to work for our justification yoked to Jesus, we work out of our justification, no longer trying to prove our worth, but living with and in Christ. Friends, those who bear Christ's yoke know this rest in their soul. And so to the needy and broken, Jesus says, come. Don't miss this. He says, come to me. Come to me. The yoke does not give rest. Jesus and our connection to him gives rest because he is gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus' yoke is easy. Jesus gives rest. I'm going to close the sermon by giving us a picture of what it might look like to work out of a heart that is at rest. Once again, I mentioned Eugene Peterson. In his book, The Contemplative Pastor, he captures a scene from Herman Melville's Moby Dick. In the particular scene that Peterson is painting, it's the scene of Captain Ahab leading his sailors out to sea that they might go and kill the whale. It's a scene marked by chaos. Ahab is barking orders. The oarsmen are straining against the sea. But there is also a harpooner. I read Peterson's words as he looks to Melville. This oarsman doesn't hold an oar. He doesn't perspire. He doesn't shout. He is languid in the crash and the cursing. This man is the harpooner, quiet and poised, waiting. And then he says, to ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil. My counselor gave me this image (laughs) because he saw something in me that needed it. Perhaps you do too. It's the image of a heart that is at rest. A heart that works out of that rest. Friends, in Christ we don't wait in idleness, but we do rest with non-anxious hearts. We settle our minds. We protect margin in our schedule because in Christ our striving has ceased. We find rest in him. And like the harpooner, we work out of a heart at rest. Friends, to those who who labor and are heavy laden, Jesus offers a command. Come to me and I will give you rest. Consider it your invitation this morning. Father, we thank you for this word. Our hearts need to hear it. Make us listen. You're sovereign over this message. Plant it in our hearts so that we would listen and heed the call to come to Jesus. Do this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.